Why the Defence Secretary thinks the defence budget is looking good. I think going from 36 billion to 39 billion ain't a bad start, do you? The General's view of the military and society. The Yemen carnage, does anybody dare talk peace? And HMS Duncan, a PR triumph on the waves. You would have been forgiven for asking Gavin who this time last year when the Prime Minister appointed Gavin Williamson as her new Secretary of State for Defence. The Honourable Member for South Staffordshire was a relative unknown in defence circles and at the time was the government's chief whip. So how have the last 12 months been? He's been speaking to our reporter, Laura Macon Isherwood, about what he's described as an amazing year. The Defence Secretary, thank you for joining us in what must be a very packed schedule at the moment. And we're talking now, when you've been in post as Defence Secretary, for just over a year. Indeed. What sort of a year has it been? Well, it's been an amazing year. I mean, every single week you see something uh, different, something that uh, our armed forces are doing in a different part of the globe, and it really takes your breath away as to the range of capabilities that we have. But most of all, the, uh, what our men and women who are serving in our armed forces are able to do and the difference they make. Have there been any sort of standout moments for you or particular highlights? Well, whether it was uh, Queen Elizabeth in uh, off Manhattan, uh, whether it was the opportunity to go and see uh, the Welsh Guards in Afghanistan, whether it was to see how our service personnel, the difference they're making in Somalia. All very different things, uh, you know, but all the time demonstrating about how all three services work so closely together. Um, and going up to RAF Coningsby, we sometimes think about what our service personnel are doing abroad, but actually the fact that the RAF are constantly uh, at a state of high readiness, ready to be able to respond to threats as they may be coming inbound, it makes you realise that uh, they are always watching and uh, keeping us safe. We are pushing towards Christmas now, aren't we? And of course you have one big project that you need to deal with before breaking for recess, and that's the Modernising Defence Programme. Do we know when we're going to hear about that? Yes, I do. Can you give us any insight as to when that will be? Yeah, I, I would rather inform the House of Commons before I informed you, but I'm, I'm sure you would appreciate that. I don't want to get into trouble with Mr Speaker. Are we definitely going to hear before Christmas? Yep, very much so. And do you know what you're going to have to deal with next year in terms of the Modernising Defence programme? Will there be many cuts? What's happening? Well, I think there's been a real shift in terms of debate over the last year. When I came into the department, uh, the narrative was about uh, you know, taking money out of defence. It was where we're going to be making capability cuts. Uh, what we've actually seen over the last year, some of the areas where people were really concerned about in terms of Albion and Bulwark, we made it clear that these are important parts of our range of capabilities that we're keeping into the future. We've seen when I came into the department, we had a budget of £36 billion. Next year, we're going to have a budget of £39 billion. Uh, we're really seeing Britain investing in our defence. And we need to, because the world that we see today is a much more challenging and dangerous world than it was uh, just a few years ago. So it's right that we're giving our armed forces the resources that they need in order to do the job that we rely on so much. 
you obviously managed to secure some extra funding from the Chancellor in this year's budget, but was it enough? Uh, well, we've seen an extra commitment of £1.8 billion towards defence over the last year. Um, I think that what we're seeing is a rising budget from 36 to £39 billion, um, and I certainly wouldn't ever wish to, um, you know, we're very grateful that the fact that there is that extra investment going into defence. But we've got to ensure that everything we do, we spend our money well, we spend our money carefully, every pound that we're spending, we make it go as far as possible. So are we, ever, are we always going to be trying to push our armed forces, our procurement to get more out of it? Uh, yes, of course we are. But I think going from 36 billion to 39 billion ain't a bad start, do you? That was Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson there talking to Laura Macon Isherwood. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here and he was listening to that. Christopher, a lot's changed since he took up the post. What's your assessment? How's he done? Well, he's quite different as well. I mean, he, he's, he's got a reputation of not being the sort of person you expect sent to the Defence Ministry. I mean, he was Chief Whip before, so he's not a dimbo by any means. You know, he's used to, used to putting people up against the wall and telling them what for. The, the bit about the £1.8 increase... Um, it's not an increase in as much that a lot of the stuff, including work on, on the nuclear uh, systems, uh, was already catered for in that £1.8 But he's actually quite right. Um, in coming into Brexit, as we are, with all the gloom stuff that comes out from the Governor of the Bank of England, etc., the defence budget over the next 20 years expects to be in deep, deep, deep trouble. And things are going to go from that budget and things are not going to happen. And so he's going to have to be going for every sort of, uh, you know, uh, mm. 1.8 billion he can get. And when, you know, when you know he's asked, well, it's, it's really good you got some money from the Chancellor, he didn't get any money from the Chancellor at all. I mean, the Chancellor said, we've got to be able to do this. What yep. have I already spent? Oh, I'll, I'll mark that down as yours, Yeah, et cetera. He, he wouldn't be drawn on any date except before Christmas for the Modernising Defence Programme. Do you think there are only going to be any big announcements in that? Or is it something that's going to be sort of like slipped down, brushed under the carpet? No, I don't think it is. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, going, it, it's going to be what used to be called the hectare promise. And that is people never quite diff know the difference between an acre and a hectare. Um, and so you never know quite sure the significance of what you get. I mean, it's some sort of army idea. Um, I think that what we're going to get out of that is the ground rules for what's going to happen in the next two or three years on defence budgets and de defence requests. But the major projects are either in place or they're coming online, especially for the Navy. And that is the important thing. It's now you get all the bleatings from the chiefs of staff about, oh, you know, the Russians are coming. The we bleatings. Need... What? The bleatings. The bleatings, absolutely, <laughs> the bleatings. Um, you get all these bleatings from the defence uh, the defense community saying, oh, you know, the Russians are coming and Putin is an absolute what's it, uh, and he's a great threat to us all, because a lot of the stuff they've got, they have got already. Uh, but it has to be progressed. In other words, you have to get more of it to keep mm. it up to going. Um, and so what they're now actually saying, you're doing all right, and he is different, you're doing all right, uh, please come up to the final standard of what we expect of a defence secretary. Mm. And it's rather like saying it in, in, it's in, in community terms, it's like being good in bed in, or in cabinet that you actually got to be able to go and prove yourself in Cabinet that you can actually pull it off. Uh, and so far, so good. And uh, Gavin Williamson is a supporter, he says he's a supporter of Theresa May, who survived a vote of confidence yesterday. 
Oh yeah, I mean if you if you go down, especially in the last sort of twenty four hours, you've been down in uh, uh, at Westminster on the Green, when people are sort of saying, well, you know, if she goes, who's going to take her place? Who's going to be in the running? Uh, there is uh, the defence secretary's name is right on the board, riding at eight, at one, eight to one at the moment, and bet Fred. Mm. Now, the head of the armed forces has called for clarity about Britain's role in the world after Brexit. In his first Christmas lecture as Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter warned threats to the UK are diversifying, proliferating and intensifying very rapidly. We therefore live in a multipolar world of competing powers, with diverging views on how the world should work, different values a sense of historic entitlement, and even some scores to settle. There is also an important military capability dimension to all of this. Countries like Russia and China have studied our strengths and invested carefully in new methods and capabilities that are designed to exploit weaknesses, whether it's cyber, ballistic and cruise missiles, low-yield nuclear weapons, space and counter-space weapons, electronic warfare, integrated air and missile defence systems, multi-barreled thermobaric rocket launchers linked digitally to drone targeting systems, new conventional capability such as low-signature submarines, aircraft and armoured vehicles. Worryingly, many of these systems are now in the hands of proxy states. No longer can we guarantee our freedom of action, which we've taken for granted, certainly for the last 30 years, from air or from sea and on land. Well, our reporter James Hurst was at that lecture. James, good to speak to you. General Nick Carter has only been in the job six months and this lecture comes just before the Modernising Defence Programme is announced. Did he make any hints about what's to come? Of course, he's worked on Modernising Defence Programme as Chief of the General Staff as well, so there is some continuity there. I mean, thematic rather than detail. Technology, he said modernisation would be led by technology. Data science, he said, should be at the heart of decision-making, but he also went on to say his priority would always be maximising the talent of men and women in the armed forces. He also talks about the armed forces' connection with society. What did he have to say about that? And it, yeah, that's about that maximising talent thing. I mean, essentially he was saying, you know, the forces actually are almost less visible than ever. He said it's an interesting paradox that the armed forces have never been more popular, but it doesn't necessarily translate into understanding. A recent SAFA survey of some 2,000 people revealed the following about their knowledge of World War I. 50% thought Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister at the time, and 10% thought it was Margaret Thatcher. 20% thought, perhaps wishfully, that we were fighting the French. 6% thought that it was President Kennedy's assassination that triggered the war. And when asked what the bloodiest battle of the war was, 16% voted for Pearl Harbour, 8% for Independence Day, 7% for the Battle of Hastings, and 5% for Helm's Deep. Yes, that's 100 out of the 2,000 who were asked who thought it was a battle in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> so, if we are to make the connection, and if we are to ensure that we represent the richness, diversity, and variety of people we serve, then we have to do better at improving understanding and making that connection. 
he's highlighting there in historical terms i think what he sees as a as a current problem of you know people maybe thinking they understand but not properly understanding his concerns restated about perceptions uh, uh, and the gap to reality perhaps the portrayal of veterans as being scarred for life it is very difficult to prove that mental health conditions that some serving personnel and veterans develop are caused by their military service non-military factors or underlying mental health conditions exacerbated by military service could all contribute to an individual's mental health. Public misconception is fuelled by television documentaries, dramas, films and some charity campaigns. And there is a risk, I think, that public misconception is acting as a barrier to the prospects of veterans in civilian life, as well as deterring would-be new recruits from joining. So, Christopher Lee, you've been listening to this as well. Um, just tell us about the significance of the Christmas lecture. It's an annual lecture at the Royal United Services Institute, and it's actually made elsewhere. Um, it's important because it's the chief of the defence staff, not the individual chiefs of staff who wants to do their lectures. Uh, but it, it gives an idea of where the services are. It's not about, you know, we've only got six, 16, 16, 16 guns in left in the Navy or anything like that. It's far more important. Uh, and then it's got something else, and you've got it in here. You've got it exactly in here. It's a theme. Doesn't he talk, James, a lot about people? He does talk about people. What interested me is normally to, to the outside world these can seem quite anodyne go back i think it's five six years when general sir nick horton did his first yeah. christmas lecture yeah. he stunned the room by talking about the services being hollowed out mm. and you hear that phrase that has threaded through the politics ever since i wondered whether nick carter was going to take that first chance to set a marker because Coin I think you only get one marker. He he went for the the, the more strategic. He was laying down his own markers, but actually he joked about making controversy at the start. Actually, he stayed away from direct controversy. I tell you, there's another side of this. When I mean, he talks about, uh, and we hear it now from 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 generals, uh, they start talking about uh, electronic warfare, etc., at the top of the list of threats. Mm. Uh, and they go through these mm. things, and then he made the point uh, uh, that all sorts of countries have got this stuff now. You know, at one time, there are only... Now, when you go back to even... When he, w when he started in the army, say, 25, 30 years ago, only nine countries had the sort of sophisticated weaponry that would allow yeah. you to go to a world war and have an advantage. Now, there's something like 37 countries have had the sort of access to things such as cyber warfare. Uh, and therefore, you don't know who's going to be starting the war, who can jam the buses or whatever. And actually, he, he, he stated what, what he was doing at the very end. He said, you know, and, and that is what this lecture, I think, is often used for. It's making the case for defence. Still to come, Afghan interpreters, the people who want to be British but can't. And it's full steam ahead for HMS Duncan's PR patrol. Now today is the final day of the first major peace conference on Yemen. Thousands dead, 100,000 plus refugees, many of them starving. The Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, is at the meeting, the first time a British minister has taken part in any discussions with the Yemenis. Uh, Christopher, 
Are these peace talks or talks about peace? They're really sort of talks that will give you an inkling on whether you can go on. So that becomes talks about peace. There's no, but there are certain things. For example, what do you do with uh, uh, prisoners? Do you agree to let certain amount of prisoners go? It's a test which all peace talks actually have this right at the beginning. And the reasons are is because quite often, if you've got about sort of sort of thirty or forty thousand uh, prisoners. What do you do with them? You can't handle them. So you don't mind that sort of thing. So you've got the possibility... Because of this is one of the moved. things that is being agreed or likely to be agreed, That's isn't it? The exchange be, of prisoners. But there's a bigger thing here. It, 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 if you get Yemen right, apart from the, the terrible carnage which you have a chance of, of, of stopping, you are going to rebalance the whole of the Middle East. It's that big. Uh, is the, that why Jeremy Hunt has taken such a particular Jeremy interest? Jeremy Hunt has taken the initiative out of the Western uh, foreign ministries uh, by going there, by keeping up to date with it, by having British uh, uh, British observers there, British people taking part. Where do we help? Where do we help in, for example, in the charity work? Where do we help in reconstruction? Where do we help with monitoring, etc.? And also, it involves British British relationships with with, with, the Saudi, with Saudi Arabia. This is the opportunity with Saudi Arabia getting a bit of a beating up or the Crown Prince getting a beating, beating up over over Mr. Khashoggi's uh, uh, killing, to get some movement on what's going on in Yemen is extraordinarily important because what comes out of the other side, if anything does come out of the other side, is the relationship between Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other. Because in truth, this is what Jeremy Hunt has talked about, this is a war between Iran and Saudi so, Arabia so in, in, in Yemen in which I, neither is sitting to get killed. How, how key is what happens in Yemen to the stabilisation of any relationship between those two powers? I don't think it will stabilise it. Uh, it. It won't stop them sort of fighting proxy wars elsewhere, but it actually resolves a big part which involves, for example, all the, uh, all, all the Gulf states, of which, of which in the tail end both countries are. This, if they get it right over Yemen, is a poss- possibility of the reshaping of the Middle East, that part of the Middle East, and don't forget, right there on the borders of Yemen, uh, you have probably the biggest naval base, British Royal Navy naval base, bigger than Portsmouth even, and that's what it's sitting there doing, and you've Mm. got also the Royal Air Force with two squadrons. We'll come back to this subject, I'm sure. Now, the plight of the local interpreters who worked alongside British soldiers during the war in Afghanistan is the focus of a new radio documentary. Reporter William Warren has spoken to some of them who are living in the UK and separated from their families back in Afghanistan. Some of them believe their lives are in danger if they return to their homeland. They've spoken here on condition of anonymity. The Home Office overall has been very difficult. Difficult because it has failed to recognise the services and the values that interpreters have offered to the whole British mission in Afghanistan. The Home Office has been short of meeting its moral responsibility towards the interpreters. I applied for an asylum five years ago and my visa is about to expire. I'm hoping to apply for a British passport to become a British citizen. But it seems to be very unlikely because I have to go through another procedure. I have to apply for an indefinite leave to remain first. There are challenges with us with the Home Office, I think. If I go back to Afghanistan, the likelihood of me being alive is very low. Very, very low. And I might possibly get killed by the Taliban immediately. Immediately. I'm not sure if I will have the same views about Britain if I go home. 
I will feel very betrayed, very, very betrayed. I'll feel very betrayed. I might even join the Taliban if I go. It was their sixth sense that only one who is born in these sort of troubled places can truly feel. We were having this little shura, this little discussion, and people were starting to leave. Ever so slowly and, and, and ever so subtly, people drifted away from this sort of gathering around the elder. Jerez said something to me and something caught my attention and I looked around and in that split moment of me looking around, everyone had disappeared inside a building and the doors had been shut. And here I said, we need to get back to the vehicles right now. About five seconds later, there was a burst of machine gun fire. Luckily, we were hot on our heels and uh, got everyone into a safe place. There is no doubt he saved lives in doing that. And I imagine he did that hundreds, if not thousands of times in the eight years that he was serving with the British. Those who left their families in Afghanistan, they are kind of like a fish who have been frozen. What kind of living would you have if you are separate from your family for this many years? First, first when you came, that was a bit hard. We were struggling. No one knows who we are and how we came here. We are hearing things, we are seeing things. A lot of our colleagues who have worked with the British Army, they are suffering from mental health issues. I was asked by our amazing team down in Bastion to look after an interpreter who had been really badly injured, in fact it was a triple amputee. And I said, well why hasn't he been evacuated and treated exactly the same as one of our, our service personnel? And the answer came back was because he was an Afghan and people were concerned about him claiming asylum. It, it started with that first, that first encounter with, with what seemed to me such an obviously rightly needy individual, a triple amputee. You know, and they were more concerned, in my view, with you know, ensuring he couldn't claim asylum in this country than they were with you know, making sure he was looked after properly. I mean, I was horrified by that. It, it, it really, you know, it absolutely, it's one of those things that sticks in your mind. It still absolutely rankles. Somebody could have so completely lost their sense of moral compass that they knew that's, that that's what they thought was more important. That was an extract from Away From You, the story of the Afghan interpreters. You also heard from former Army Captain Ed Aitken and former Colonel Simon Diggins. You can listen to the programme in full on forces.net slash news. Now, has the Royal Navy scooped the PR opportunity of the year? TV cameras have been on board HMS Duncan, the Navy's Type 45 air defence destroyer, on patrol in the Black Sea for Channel 5's warship Life at Sea. It's behind the scenes of the real Navy and it's getting people to join up. If you didn't see it, listen to it. This is NATO warship Delta 37. Flight controller Matt Rayside issues a warning to the Russian pilots. The jets are coming too close to Duncan's radar, which is so powerful it could harm their electronics and cause them to crash. You are closing my position. We are operating high power radars. I request you remain outside two miles of your safety. We had a response from Hudson, but it was garbled. We repeated it and there's no response, but uh, assessment is they are hearing. So what we're doing at the moment is tracking them, reading the appropriate uh, approach warnings with regards to our high cone radar, uh, and making sure that they understand that we're, we're able to track the whole thing and monitor it. I, I, I need to. Flash a message, receive good luck, guys. One of the Russian pilots has sent Duncan a farewell message. When they say good luck, they're going to come back. I think, I imagine the good luck was uh, post their display of air power. Um, 
saying uh, good luck uh, in the future or good luck defeating us with this many aircraft airborne. Uh, so they had they had 17 aircraft. We've got 48 missiles. So I think we're going to win that one. <laughs> Very useful. Very useful to see. Okay, team, listen in. One ear up. Commodore wishes to address you all. Right, Duncan. An amazing job there. You are probably the only maritime asset that has seen a raid of that magnitude in the last 25 years. Um, the way you dealt with it was exceptional. Very, very well done. Be ready for them to come back. Last and best. Thanks very much. You heard that uh, from the documentary Warship Life at Sea. Well, naval historian Professor Eric Grove is with us. Hello, Eric. Um, Hello, hi. What did you make of it? Oh, I think it's a very good series. I mean, it's a, it's a very good demonstration of what life in an active RN ship is like today uh, and shows you what the Navy has been doing, a, a pretty active life in both the Black Sea and the, uh, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Only one quibble, mm-hmm. and that is that due, I think, to bad editing, uh, the Russian ship that was supposed to be shadowing them in the Black Sea began on screen correctly as a Krivak, but then when they showed it alongside the ship, or more, or more or less alongside, it, 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 it transmogrified itself into a cash-in, and the principal, <laughs> and the principal warfare officer c- uh, continued calling it a Krivak. You see, Eric, think... they should have had you as an advisor on the programme, shouldn't well, they? Actually, this, this ship is unique, in fact. It's the last of the cash-ins. It's, it's one of the oldest destroyers in service in the world. It, it's called the Smet Livy, and it's, uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of a flagship of the Black Sea Fleet. But, but generally speaking, I think it's extremely good, and it's updated me a little bit on the acronyms, which have changed slightly. Oh, go on. What's, what's changed? What's changed? Oh, it's the, it's, it's the uh, e- EWO, executive, executive Warrant Officer it is now, <laughs> whereas in the old days it used to be Electronic Warfare Officer or something. <laughs> yes. Christopher, you're a fan of this, aren't you? I'm a great fan of it. Um, let's get it right. The, Duncan uh, is probably one of the best, if not the best of its class, of uh, anti-aircraft uh, destroyers afloat Correct. today. I mean, that's something, with all the problems they've had, that's right. Uh, this one has got, I think, the first uh, woman captain, uh, a commander uh, in, in, in the squadron, uh, and everything was filmed as, nothing was set up, as far as I know, uh, and it showed what it was like and the toughness, but also how the team worked. I mean, I mean, one of the things you've got to have a problem with when you've got, uh, uh, you haven't got enough, you haven't got enough bunks for the people, and you have to set up camp beds in in, in sort of uh, working mm. spaces when things go wrong, and you've got a people who can uh, you can't get things done properly. So the whole ship's company has to turn to mm. and sort of put their hand to it, and then you get something which the Russians laid on for them. Suddenly there was one flanker, which is an aircraft, appearing. The next thing there were two, then there were three, then there were four, then there were 17. Yeah, I can imagine the TV crews rubbing their hands with glee when that well, happened. They, they absolutely did, but so did the ship's company. Mm. I mean, there was a young, uh, a young officer under training there who was being sent home, and he didn't want to go. He wanted to wait for the, <laughs> for the Russians so, to come. But let me tell you, by the way, what the, uh, what the Russian flankers were also doing. They were trying to see how HMS Duncan reacted to them, mm. because in time of war, you don't want to see, you don't want to hide anything. You want to see how many seconds it takes before they get it right between a Krivak and a Kashin. Professor Eric Grove, notwithstanding what Christopher said about bunks and at times there being problems with them, how, gr- how good a recruiting tool do you think this series is? Well, I think excellent, because I think it demonstrates that if you join the Navy, you're actually doing something, and doing something that's actually increasingly important, given the growing confrontation. That's right. Nobody Russia. had a non-job, did they, Eric? That's right, absolutely. But absolutely. is it, I mean, it's, it can't be like that all the time. We all know it's edited. 
Oh, it there is. There must yes. be boredom too. Well, I mean, inevitably, but, but but I think it demonstrates, you know, what the Navy is doing and the various, you know, confrontations that have taken place. And I think that attracts people. It's not, you know, that, uh, that uh, it's an important job. Mm. And uh, um, it doesn't necessarily uh, bring back the senior rates, etc., who have been lost over the, over the last a few years. But it certainly encourages uh, encourages people to come in. I'll tell you what, Eric, is, is interesting. Uh, take the three services at the moment. Uh, the other two services, the Army and the Air Force couldn't have done this. I was actually and going the, to ask you that. I was going to say, if you had to do a documentary series that had the same kind of effect on the RAF and the Army, what would you choose to film? Well, you couldn't, you see. For the RAF, for example, it has aeroplanes. And so the aeroplane disappears up into the sky, <laughs> and that's that's the whole half hour gone, or an that's hour's programme gone. Uh, yeah. The Army, what do you do? You stick them in a tank, maybe, and you dash it across the North German plane in the old days, and that's all you could ever do. What you get to is in this ship... You've got 260-odd people. You may be a bit biased, though, Christopher, on this. Uh, I don't think so on this. No, I think, I think it's basically true. I mean, I think that... Oh, there you, know, you are. I don't have to be biased. <laughs> cause Eric, You're both a, biased. <laughs> a warship is a community, and it's a community that goes into the front line together, from the Commodore down to the most junior seaman. And I think that's an important point, and I think it's a, it's a good recruiting point. The Navy always has been, as Drake put it, all of one company. That I think ship it shows how, is the how, equivalent how, of a 30,000-person town. That's right. And you get and all the problems with it, including drug testing, which they did yes, right now. Yes, I know where they did. That's right. Absolutely. And on that note, we must leave it. Professor Eric Grove, thank you for your time. Thanks to Christopher, too, as well. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for SITREP wherever you download your podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. I'll speak to you at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.